This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this lovely Saturday morning for the 89th consecutive show since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Last week, we began a discussion on gun violence as a public health problem, and we're going to follow that up today with my guest, Dr. David Shapiro. Dr. Shapiro is the chief medical officer at St. Francis Hospital, and he is a well-known trauma surgeon, uh, well-known throughout the state, and he's someone on the front lines uh, of this problem in dealing with gunshot wounds and gun violence. So he will be our guest in the second half of the program. And last week when we started talking about public health, uh, it's always good to start with a definition. And, and, and the more brief definition is really public health is the science and art of preventing disease, prolonging life, and promoting physical health and efficiency through organized community efforts. It is a community effort. That's the key to this. And there are so many issues that public health specialists deal with. Uh, we deal with smoking in the past, right? That was a big public health problem. And we've been able to cut back on lung cancer because of the efforts to cut back smoking. We decided that as a community. We decided as a community that seatbelts kept people safer, and certainly they have had a huge impact. Infectious diseases like COVID-19, right? And through history, really, it's been these infectious diseases and improved sanitation that have helped things the most. But now we're dealing with other problems, right? And we've talked a little bit about gun violence, and we're going to talk a little bit later about another public health problem uh, that has grown, and that is suicide. When getting back to COVID statistics, we have a positivity rate now in the state of Connecticut of 8.1%. Total deaths in the United States are over a million, a million, 12,000 deaths. And this week we heard that the name and face of this fight against COVID also has COVID, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Here is somebody like myself who has been fully vaccinated and boosted and still got the virus. But by the same token, this 81-year-old has relatively mild symptoms despite being in a high-risk category and really demonstrates to some degree the benefits of a vaccination program and keeping up with vaccination. This week, we're dealing with now children, right? So there is going to be approval of the FDA already approved. We're waiting for the CDC to approve the COVID vaccine for children under the age of five. So these are children in that age group of six months to five years. 
and there are two different vaccines available. The first was Pfizer, and this is a three-shot vaccine, and it is basically, the vaccine is 10% of what you would use for an adult. So it's a 10% of the adult titration. You would give one dose, followed three weeks later by a second dose, and then a third dose, which is administered two months after the second dose. Now, Moderna also has a vaccine available for children, and it's about 25% of the adult dosage, but it's only two shots. So two shots, two weeks apart. And the decision here that parents are going to face are, first of all, which to give and, and which is most available. And clearly, a child would not be fully vaccinated by the start of school with the Pfizer vaccine. So it's really uh, an issue from that standpoint. Now, some people probably thinking, well, the real decision is whether to have your child vaccinated or not. And again, this is why you have a pediatrician. This is why you have a doctor who knows your child and knows what the teachings are and what the vaccines available are and how they will affect your child. It's so important. Um, you know, and, and this is not something new. This resistance is, is not something new, actually. Um, I was reminded this week of uh, a story about Elvis Presley, of all people, in 1959. He got his uh, polio vaccine uh, in the back of the Ed Sullivan show um, so that he could demonstrate to everybody that it was safe because there was some resistance to even the polio vaccine. And let's face it, polio was devastating physically. You could actually see these physical effects as opposed to an airborne influenza vaccine, uh, influenza-type illness that we're experiencing with COVID, despite the fact that it could cause long-standing problems for people with long COVID and, unfortunately, in some people, death. This day in medicine, June 18, 1348, was the date Dr. Gentili da Foligno, an Italian surgeon, um, passed away, 1348. And what he did was he wrote a concilium on the plague. And in this concilium, now again, this is before America was discovered, he describes semina or seeds of disease. Right? And so he's already describing an infectious agent. And he also des describes the remains of infectious materials left by patients who may have died of the plague. So he really, even in 1348, was writing about the hallmarks of infectious disease and public health at that time. Ironically, he passed away from the plague itself. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back to talk about a, a few different topics um, that have come up this week. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. 
I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been hearing about a small drug trial that was held at Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital in New York on patients who were suffering from rectal cancer. And it's interesting because we did a show last month on colorectal cancer. But in this drug trial, what was interesting was they were able to identify a genetic instability in this rectal cancer. The published trial uh, was of 14 patients. I believe there are up to 18 patients now where they gave them a drug called dostorlimab. Dostorlimab is one of these monoclonal antibodies. So here's what they did. They found the genetic susceptibility of the tumor. And what they did was they created a way of blocking. So what happens is the tumor, the, the human body can fight cancer, believe it or not. And cancer is basically where a cell just starts replicating over and over and over again. What happens is the tumor produces a substance that stops the human body from being able to fight that tumor. What this drug did was it attacked the tumor and specifically it attacked the protein, okay, it, the cell protein that block the immune system, our natural immune system, from fighting the cancer. The results are 18 patients had no sign of tumor six months after treatment. And when I say no sign of tumor, the tissue where the tumor was has been replaced by healthy pink vascular tissue. No sign of tumor, no scarring. No sign of tumor after administering this drug. Not, it's not your typical chemotherapy. Again, we're in the field of genetics and identifying genetic makeup of tumor and essentially producing vaccine. You know, a lot of people jumped all over messenger RNA, right? I don't want a messenger RNA vaccine. And we've talked about it on this program before. To re briefly summarize, messenger RNA is the chassis of a car, and you just build different types of cars on top of that same chassis. That's basically it. So what they did recently in another study is they tried to attack pancreatic cancer. For those of you not familiar with pancreatic cancer, in most cases it's a death sentence. We have very few treatments for pancreatic cancer because you don't typically identify pancreatic cancer until after it has spread. And it's devastating. So, again, what they did in this case was they took a piece of a person's tumor, sent it off to a laboratory where they created a specific vaccine against the pancreatic cancer in this person, built on messenger RNA by BioNTech, right? The same company that partnered with Pfizer to produce vaccine. So BioNTech produces this vaccine for this patient, again, personalized medicine, and four years later, she's still alive. Now, 
that's not to say that she's out of the woods, but by the same token, they interviewed the patient, and it's clear that they've given her time that she would not have had. So again, I want to emphasize the importance of our work in genetics and our work on producing vaccines. And it's something we're going to hear a lot about, especially with this drug trial for rectal cancer. And uh, we'll keep informed about that. I learned I learned a lot of things during the week. And, and, and when I learn something really new, I'd like to share that with all of you. And this was about suicide. Suicide is one of the leading causes of death in the United States. In 2020, we had almost 46,000 people lose their lives to suicide. It's among the top nine causes of death in people from ages 10 to 64. It's the second leading, this is something that I found interesting, the second leading cause of death in children ages 10 to 14 and young adults ages 25 to 34. What I learned was there was a podcast, an interview done with someone about different ways of preventing suicide from the standpoint that when we report it on the air or in writing, there are certain things we should and shouldn't say in order to decrease, and this has been shown, to decrease the risk to people who are contemplating suicide. Now, one of the big things is using appropriate language. So, and, and I'm guilty of this, we say the words, someone committed suicide. And it's really not a proper term to say someone committed suicide. It's not that they, they didn't commit a crime. They didn't murder somebody, right? So, Really, the appropriate term would be someone died by suicide, right? You die from something, okay? So it's an important change, and it's something I'm going to change when I speak of a topic um, such as suicide. Or you could even say someone killed themselves, okay? But um, to use that commitment um, is not an appropriate term. They also stress that we shouldn't harp on the details when we report a suicide or talk about a suicide. For example, um, the location, um, the manner, whether they left a note or not, and things such as that. Again, um, those things don't help and would probably help in really reducing the rate of suicide. So even simple things like using proper terminologies are, are important. And, and you want to avoid glamorizing or romanticizing anything about suicide and, or oversimplifying or even speculating on, on a reason for someone um, who may have died by suicide. So, and one of the most important things we have to do when we talk about suicide really is make sure we give the appropriate number, the hotline, the 1-800-273-8255 number. 
And that's the number for the hotline if someone is contemplating suicide. Having a hotline like that, a national hotline, has made a big difference. You know, one of the things uh, came to mind um, was, you know, with recent suicide of, um, uh, I think it's Naomi Judd, but her daughters actually, in order to avoid the the frenzy of, of the press trying to find out how she did it, and they actually talked about the manner she did it. And it was interesting that they came forward with that um, because they knew that uh, the press would be out there trying to dig that up and really, you know, pry into someone's um, personal uh, personal information. So I think we're going to talk a little bit more about suicide because it is such a big problem. And um, uh, maybe we can get our friend Dr. Jim O'Day back on. Uh, from Hartford Healthcare to to share his knowledge on this topic. Something that keeps coming up are fraternities. You know, uh, I didn't get into it uh, last week or the week before when we talked about be- the be- this day in medicine. But Carl Jung, the neuropsychologist, his grandfather um, was a member of a fraternity, and somehow some member of the fraternity murdered another and he got stuck in the middle of it. Anyhow, the point was that people have been dying in these fraternities for a long time. And I'm reminded all the time in the news, we're seeing alcoholism in fraternities, right? Hazing through fraternities always seems to involve alcohol and particularly young men dying while trying to pledge for a fraternity. I don't get it, okay? I, I think, you know, if a child came to me and said, oh, I'm thinking of pledging for a fraternity, uh, maybe I'm disconnected from it, but I'd say forget it. That's not why you're going to school, okay? And we need to really clamp down on this because these young men who think they are invincible, think they could imbibe any amount of alcohol, and it has been leading to needless death. We're going to be back uh, with my guest, Dr. David Shapiro. I want to give you the email. It's info at alessimd.com. And if you have questions on anything I've talked about or things that come up during the week uh, that you'd like me to chat about or something you'd like to talk about on the program, just shoot me an email. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, as I mentioned, Dr. David Shapiro from St. Francis Hospital. He is the chief medical officer. He is a trauma surgeon, and we've got questions for him. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you uh, this morning and uh, with my guest, Dr. David Shapiro. Dr. Shapiro is the chief medical officer at St. Francis Hospital here in Hartford. And he was a guest on our program four years ago, and actually in 2018. Um, he's a general surgeon specializing in trauma surgery. And we wanted to bring him on to really get his insight into this public health emergency we're facing in America in trying to deal with gun violence. David, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, Tony. Um, 
Well, let's start right off. Gun violence is a public health emergency, we're told, nationally. Uh, is that the case here in Connecticut? What, what is the status of gun violence in Connecticut? I think the most important thing to remember is that gun violence affects literally every community. Uh, we may think that we don't see it every day. We may think that we see firearms in mass shootings across the country, and we haven't seen um, big ones in Connecticut, but we see gun violence every day not just in the cities, but in the towns and communities that we don't think are guilty of it or don't think we, they have it. It's something that I see every day in, in my old job. In the, in the role I have now as the chief medical officer, I'm not directly involved with them, but I'm still involved in the advocacy, and our trauma team at St. Francis takes care of it all the time. So it's, it's not a surprise to me. We do have among the, the safest uh, gun laws across the country, but there's still not enough. So let's talk a little bit about that. What are some of the factors driving this rise in gun violence? I mean, we hear from people who keep saying it's mental health, mental health, mental health. But, um, you know, and then and then we hear that it's guns, guns, guns. So um, what's your perspective on this? What do you think is really driving this problem right now? I think there's, a, there's it's always multiple factors. And, you know, I heard your, your conversation earlier about suicide and we see suicide is up. We see mental health concerns for people has been, I don't think it's increased. I think it's we're more aware of it, and we see it more, and it's out in the open. But because the majority of firearm deaths are from um, uh, people who die of suicide rather than homicide, we scuttle it because we don't want to admit that people are willing and able to, to um, participate in that act. I, I think the other side of it is, we have, an, uh, we have an unprecedented increase uh, for the, bigger than any other time in the last 100 years of firearm homicides. I think increased by 15% just in the last year and a half or two years. And that's increased um, uh, 45% across the states in 2019 to the start of 2022. There's a ton of information about why it's happening, but no one's really identified a single factor. We have people who are alone at home during the pandemic. We have laws uh, that are a little bit more difficult to enforce when we're not out there and seeing people. Uh, just one example is, if you think about uh, motor vehicle crashes, the beginning of the pandemic when we had a shutdown, we noticed people drove faster. There may have been less people on the road. People drove faster, had a higher, a higher incidence of crashes and a higher incidence of dying. We saw the same thing across the country with violence, not just firearm violence, but uh, violence in general. I think the police were afraid. They were dealing with um, other needs. We have the, um, uh, the National Guard was called out for a variety of areas to support, and they couldn't quell violence. There's a lot of factors in there that aren't just um, uh, labeled as one. <clears throat> we also saw a lot of people losing their jobs, um, people at home, and people not with uh, other things to do. And we tend to um, do things that we're not supposed to do when we're not being watched. And I don't mean that it's not meant to be uh, whittling it down to one thing, because it certainly isn't one thing. Um, even places with higher, uh, more strict gun laws have not seen as big a decrease as they should. Well, let's back up a little bit because a lot of people say, well, it's it's really a mental health problem. But when we look at other countries, right, when we look at other countries, uh, I don't think we have a bigger mental health problem than many other industrialized countries. Yet we clearly have a bigger gun problem or a gun violence problem than other countries do. I mean, so even if the numbers have not gone down with more restricted laws in those places, they're 
no one, as far as I know, is to the degree of having a problem we do. Would I be right? Absolutely. We implicate mental illness. Well, I should say we. Some people implicate mental illness as the cause of the violence, but it's not only wrong, it can be extremely harmful because people who are, have mental illness are not the perpetrators of a lot of the violent deaths we see. We see people who die of suicide. Well, we hear about people who die of suicide usually after the fact. We often uh, have a, a shameful side of that, but we need to help those people before. That said, mental illness may lead to people having suicidality, but it also leads to people having other interactive problems, staying at home and being on their own, not being supported. We have to intervene in those things ahead of time in order to catch it. The challenge we have, though, is that people who are violent, they're not attributed to being mentally ill. We don't call the person who wants to solve their problems with violence by robbing a store or holding someone at gunpoint or even just um, having an argument. We don't call them mentally ill. We call them violent. And the challenge is if we're going to diagnose people, let's do that as a country and change the way we approach people, take away the stigmata that's associated with mental illness. But it's not just about mental illness. The vast majority of people who have mental health problems do not commit mass shootings. It doesn't happen that way. Um, so so we I think to- we're talking about two different things. And, and uh, let's separate them to some degree because we're talking about suicide, homicide, somebody who holds up a store, somebody goes in there with a handgun and starts shooting, okay? And then we've got mass shootings, right? We have Newtown and Sandy Hook. Nothing could get closer to home than that, right? We have Evaldi. So now we're talking mass shootings. I'm going to ask you right out, David, is there any reason for someone in the state of Connecticut to own an AR-15? Uh, my opinion? Absolutely not. There is no reason for that. And I hope that people who are listening out there want to call in and tell me a reason why, because there really isn't. There's no reason for most people across the country to have it. Uh, you know, I, I heard someone talking the other day on the news about um, uh, in New Zealand. There are certain types of firearms they need to deal with the predators that are out there affecting human beings and making sure they don't get killed by an animal. It, you can do that with a handgun. You can do that with smaller arms, and you can do that with prevention and fencing, and there are ways to keep those animals out. We don't need those things here. Those things are for the, in my opinion, sheer joy and um, uh, overzealous interest in having something for the sake of having it. And instead of, they're not really for personal protection. They're not for a well-regulated militia. They're not for all the reasons that we talk about, and all they do is cause human destruction. Let's talk about some of that destruction. You've seen the wounds that have been described to us after someone is shot with an AR-15 or other assault rifle, right? These are devastating wounds, and we can go, I mean, you know, I'm wondering if we're at the point where we need to have some tough love here and people really start to see what we're talking about because we hear about it going through a watermelon and and the differences in the shots and uh, first of all can you describe why don't you describe for our listeners who aren't familiar with it the difference between a wound from a handgun and a wound from an assault rifle so uh, i'm gonna i'll do i'll do a little bit more than that i'll tell you the difference between a wound from an impact a wound from a knife a wound from a a smaller weapon or with a higher weapon please the velocity of those things going through you is what really causes the problem. Because you may have a small handgun that has a 22 um, caliber um, projectile in it, 
and that may hit someone. It may penetrate skin and soft tissue. It may, it can go into the skull. People often say, oh, it doesn't, it can penetrate the skull, at least one layer of it. And they tend to flatten out or fragment and cause smaller problems. They still cause devastating problems with a smaller firearm. They can still kill someone. The challenge is that when you have a fire, a higher um, caliber firearm and a higher uh, velocity or higher speed of that projectile, that bullet leaving that firearm, when it hits the, um, the human body, it causes something, and all bullets do this with a varying degree. The faster it is, the more severe it is. We call it cavitation. Cavitation is kind of the ripple effect that you see when you, if you're in a, um, uh, a subway station and the train goes by and you feel that big brush of air, you're not being hit by the train, but you're being hit by this, uh, this cast of air or energy that's beyond the train that's being pushed along. If you think about that going through something, and people see ballistics gel or watermelons, et cetera, and they see the destruction inside, but that going through your body, if you think about the, the closeness of all the systems in our body, a bullet going through your belly or your abdomen will affect your gastrointestinal system, so your intestines. It will affect your liver, your uh, aorta, the main blood vessel going, bringing blood from your heart, the vena cava, the main blood vessel bringing blood back to your heart. All those systems are within uh, an inch or two of each other. And one bullet going through there can destroy all of them at the same time. When you talk about that kind of destruction, that bullet may cause destruction, but think about the several inches further out that that destruction causes. It's like having a giant pole go through your body at high speed, and uh, that devastation uh, is very difficult to fix. You talked about cancer earlier. Cancer is something that we have learned over the years to target different portions of its process in order to fix the problem and reverse it or even prevent it. We have not been able to approach firearm um, deaths or injuries the same way because we don't have that kind of technology. Uh, the only way to do that is the old-fashioned meatball surgery in a lot of ways. We can do things to save you and keep you from dying at the instance of your, um, of your in injury or right afterward, but that gets you to the hospital. It doesn't prevent the injury from happening in the first place. They may prevent you from dying right away, but they may not prevent you from dying later. The devastation these bullets causes is enormous. Um, so if you're, looking, if you're telling me that you're using it for target shooting, you don't need a bullet. You need a pellet. You need something else that's going to cause less damage if it accidentally hits somebody. If you want that power to injure another person, I want people to be willing to admit that and then realize they're making an error because that's an error of their ways. We shouldn't be aiming to hurt others. Sorry for being on a diatribe there, Tony. No, I, I'm glad you did uh, because I want to touch on that a little bit more. And um, I read recently about the Emmett Till moment, right? And we talked about it last week on this program where Emmett Till who was the victim of a racial assault and murder in the South, um, hit his funeral, his mother insisted that he have an open coffin to demonstrate the wounds to her son that were so devastating. And many people believe that that was a huge step forward in terms of stopping these racial attacks and lynchings in the South. Is it time for an Emmett Till moment now from the standpoint that I don't want to pry into people, but maybe our elected officials need to look at the pictures of these children who were shot up okay, and murdered at Newtown and at Uvalde? Is, is that, would that help, in your opinion, 
that maybe because what we're at is a situation where we have politics interfering with public health and it's never a good combination do you think it's time for an Emmett Till moment I think the Emmett Till moment that we could have uh, is in part demonstrating the devastation but I'll ask you this Tony don't we already see it don't we already see or realize that when someone is injured at a young age or isn't even exposed to violence at their young age of five or six, we know that they're more likely to be a perpetrator of violence in the future. And it's not their fault. We know that people who are in communities that have higher violence tend to perpetrate more violence themselves. So until we can stop it and demonstrate that those things are related, people don't seem to care. Uh, showing them the injuries, um, I mean, I've seen many an injury over the last, 20 years of this career, and they don't make me anything but more angry, but I'm also there for the victim. My job is to prevent them from dying and prevent any future people from dying for the same thing. And that's the job of all folks involved in, from emergency medicine and police to uh, trauma critical care and the recovery after those. I, I'm not sure one thing is going to be enough, but if someone wants to demonstrate that, um, I, I'm, if it's, it's their personal interest, Go for it. I, I think, well, I, I'd like politicians to just ban the sale of assault weapons. I mean, that's basically it. That's, here's one basic thing that can happen. We can't even get them to prohibit it to people over 21. I mean, if we could just get that, okay, just stop. It may be a small step, but I think it's a big step in terms of getting assault rifles off the street, which are being used against policemen and other people who are innocent. But... Let me move on. If you're on the scene of an accident, it doesn't necessarily have to be a gunshot, okay? Um, what can people do to help um, in terms of, I mean, obviously call 911, but you've got this person bleeding and, and you want to do something to help them. Is there some training we should start having um, other than CPR, which has been so helpful um, with uh, basic life support, but uh, is there some type of trauma training that we should all have um, as citizens in our community? So there is, and almost every hospital, every large trauma center anyway across the country and in Connecticut teach the concept of something called Stop the Bleed. Now, it's not the only thing out there to do this, but it, uh, it is important. It's, it's, it's all, it's, um, this is for your listeners. It's always free. No one should be paying for Stop the Bleed. They can call me if they have to. I'm one of the national leaders for Stop the Bleed. It's a product of the Department of Defense and the American College of Surgeons, and it actually started in Connecticut. So, um, and I'll, I'll back us up a little bit. Back after the events of Newtown, there was something called the Hartford Consensus, which was um, started by a little roundtable, including um, Senator Blumenthal, who was then the Attorney General, then Vice President Biden, Len Jacobs, who was, a, um, I'm sure, been on your show before, a trauma surgeon um, in our system in Hartford for the last um, several dozen years. They got together and decided, how can we fix this problem of gun violence and prevent people from dying? Now, their focus turned away from guns and got towards the secondary prevention of injury. How can we prevent people from dying uh, when they're dying from bleeding? The number one cause of preventable death after an injury of any kind is bleeding, and most people are afraid of it. When someone collapsed on the ground, most people aren't afraid of getting up there and doing uh, hands-only or compressions-only CPR. So Stop the Bleed was born of that. And the concept is, number one, 
keep yourself and the scene safe. If someone falls out of a tree and a tree's about to fall on them, we shouldn't have you going in there and trying to pull them out and putting yourself in danger. That adds a second victim. If someone's still shooting, pull the patient aside and get them to the biggest protected area you can. And first, call 911. Call for emergency help because this is only a temporizing measure. Second is put direct pressure on that wound. And that means the same old thing we used to learn in first aid. Lean into it. Push steadily. You can use a piece of T-shirt or sock or, ga or gauze, anything you need. Just hold pressure on it and don't peek. Hold that. If it doesn't stop the bleeding, we take that piece of cloth or gauze and pack it inside the wound if it's large enough. And the more you pack in, the more tightly, tightly it's packed, the better off you can prevent bleeding. And the last step of that process is actually using a tourniquet, which in the past several years has come back as a favorable um, choice. But the real teaching of this process called Stop the Bleed is available in Stop the Bleed courses that are available everywhere. You can go to stopthebleed.org or bleedingcontrol.org, and those places can get you linked up with local classes. It's not something you can learn over the phone. It's a half an hour. Again, it's free, and it doesn't cost anything for organizations to do it. Um, but it can help prevent um, a death from this. And since we know that bleeding is one of the number one causes, or the number one cause of preventable death after injury, stop the bleed can make a difference. David, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for all you and the folks at St. Francis and Trinity Health of New England are doing to keep us all safe. Um, much appreciated, and thanks again for spending time with us today. Thank you, Tony, and thanks for the platform. This is important for us in, in the state and across the country. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back to wrap it up. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. It's great to be back with you. And to wrap up today's show, it was great having Dr. David Shapiro on. And please remember, um, StopTheBleed.com, um, just that little bit of training can make a big difference for you and loved ones. I also want to mention, again, the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. We're going to be talking more about that in future programs. I've got a lot of future programs to touch on. We want to get back to migraine headaches, and we want to get somebody on to talk about monkeypox. Um, many thanks to our studio producer, Tom Connolly Wilson, has been on the board for us today. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. And as always, uh, you could, if you missed any part of today's program, you can get it on the Healthy Rounds podcast. Just download it on iTunes or at Odyssey. Next up on WTIC is going to be Law Talk with Attorney John Matulis. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.